So Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces, were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold. Each one was different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bizda, Habona, Bigda, Abagda, Zita and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Kashina, Shita, Admata, Tashish, Merez, Masina and Mimukin, the seven nobles of Persia and Medea, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him come, issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. 
the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent despatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Higai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who, please, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice also appealed to the king, and he followed it. Thanks heaps, Troy. Well, friends, um, as I mentioned already, uh, there's no question that this is a, a fascinating part of God's Word written in a very different time and place, and it can be challenging for us to get our heads into it. So I just want to start with a very simple discussion question, nothing terribly threatening. If you're new to church with us here, we're just as interested in, in your answers, but you don't have to shout them out. It's just for something to talk with the person sitting next to you. I think that we've got the question up on the screen there, and then I'll come and grab the clicker for the rest of the talk. Thank you. But essentially, I'd love for you to be chatting with each other. When do you find it hard to see God at work? It's going to take 30 seconds, maybe a minute. When do you find it hard to see God at work? Have a chat with the person next to you. All right, friends, always good to hear the buzz of conversation as you guys are wrestling with some of that. Feel free to pick up the conversations after our time together. Uh, but we are going to dive into this wonderful part of God's Word. I've been so encouraged by the way we've just kept commending our time to God. We, we, we're praying about what we're doing and I'm going to continue to do that, asking that He'd help us to engage with what He's saying here. Loving Father, we thank You that in the midst of, of all our uncertainty, the times when You seem to be hard to see, thank You that if we know Jesus, we know that You are unchanging, all-powerful. You are faithful to Your promises and overflowing in loving kindness. And so please help us to trust you, come what may. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I've already said it, but the book of Esther is about such a different time and place that we need to spend a little bit of time getting our heads around it if we're going to understand what's being said. You will have noticed that um, those opening words of the book tell us that this is what happens during the time of Xerxes. So it's actually kind of helpful to know, well, what is the time of Xerxes? I've called this series, uh, that this is uh, written for such a time as this, and today we're thinking through what it means for this time now as to be a time to trust. Now, I'm going to give you a bit of a crash course in Bible history, not because you need to be an expert in it, but because it does help us to understand some of what's going on in this wonderful part of the Bible. So the year is the year 483 BC, 483 years before Jesus. That's the time and the place, from the perspective of this book, the entire known world is under the dominion of the Persian Empire. That's it on the map there. Uh, we were told in what we read that it spread from India to northern Africa, 
We also know it went through Greece and into Europe. In fact, modern Afghanistan is even included in this over on the the right-hand side of that there. It's a massive empire that just dominated this whole part of the world. If if you've read much of the Bible, you're probably familiar with the Babylonian Empire. That's one that we hear a lot about in the Old Testament because that's where God's people were taken into exile. Well, the Babylonian Empire, that had seemed dominant, fearsome, and yet... Look how small it was in grey there compared with the massive Persian Empire. And the book of Esther, well, it's located right in the heart of this massive empire. We read that we're in the capital, Susa, the bright red star in the middle there. Don't worry if you can't see many of the details, read the fine print. The point is, if you're there in Susa, it feels like Xerxes, the Persian king, rules, rules the entire world. Now, to, to further appreciate just how dominant Persia felt at the time of Esther, because that's really the headspace we've got to get into. I've got this timeline. It looks pretty dense, doesn't it? Don't worry, you don't need to remember all of the details. The point is to help us to get into the headspace of the people living at the time. So we're going to run through this. You see, 240 years before Esther, there was an empire, the Assyrian Empire. That had come through and trashed the northern kingdom of Israel. If we're thinking about parts of the Bible, that's happening when the prophet Isaiah was alive. The Assyrian Empire was the dominant one. Then 100 years before Esther, Assyria had been replaced as the main superpower by Babylon. That was kind of the new alpha dog. And the Babylonians, they trashed Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people, and they took the exiles into Babylon. Then 50 years before Esther... The Persian Empire, they just stormed to power under Xerxes' grandfather, the great Emperor Cyrus. He defeated Babylon, he massively expanded the empire. And that was really important for God's people because Cyrus was the one who allowed the first part of the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem. We can read about that in the Bible in the book of Ezra. Now Cyrus was Xerxes' grandfather, then under Xerxes' father Darius... It was a pretty sad attempt at trying to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. It wasn't until Xerxes' own son, Artaxerxes, was on the throne that the Jews had a go at actually rebuilding the city of Jerusalem itself. Now, you don't need to memorise kind of the kings of Persia. It's just to make the point that during Esther's time, that the space that we're getting our head into during the reign of King Xerxes, God's people had been scattered throughout this mighty empire generations of God's people have been, have been born into cultures and places that, that shaped and challenged their identity, constantly challenging any sense of belonging to God's people. It would have seemed that every area of life, from how you thought about your sexuality, to what it meant to have a job, to what it means to own property, even the way that justice was upheld, the basic kind of structures of society, everything was up for grabs. And God's people were kind of torn between what it means to be God's people so far from their home and in such a different culture. It would have been very easy to wonder where God was in it all. And so it's actually no accident that Esther is one of only two books in the whole Bible that doesn't even mention God. There's a piece of trivia for the next quiz night you go to, just in case someone asks that. One of only two books in the whole Bible that doesn't even mention God. I wonder whether you noticed that in the first chapter and a bit that we've just read. For the whole rest of the book, 
God is not mentioned even once. And it's not a mistake, it's actually a key part of what God is saying through this part of his word. Because I think Esther is meant to resonate with a really core question for us today. What does it mean to trust in the invisible God? Now, I want to drill into this a little bit further because I want you to feel the weight of this, to, to understand a little bit more what it would have felt to live in Susa, under the rule of Xerxes, because it would have seemed that all of God's promises, they just kind of faded away into oblivion. Here's a really helpful way to remember God's key promises, that his people would live in his place under his rule. And well, when in the time of Xerxes, when he reigned, God's people, they're scattered, they're fearful, they're vulnerable, they're struggling to maintain any sense of identity as God's people. God's place, that's in ruins. In Jerusalem, the temple, it's only halfway restored. The city is still a mess. There's all sorts of oppression and opposition around. And God's rule? Well, that's just so hard to see. God had promised a king in the line of David, but that just seemed like a faded memory. The whole priestly system that God had set up, that was just a mess. And the scriptures where God taught his people how to live, they just sat on the shelf covered in dust. And this is the world of the book of Esther. And yet I wonder whether you start to realise just how much it sounds like life today in, if you want to use the idea, the, the empire of the world. Where is God in it all? Has he taken his hand off the wheel? Can he be trusted to keep his promises when they just seem to... they just seem to have been overwhelmed by changing cultures and opinions... How do you trust a God who seems so invisible? Well, Laura, you can relax a little bit because that's that's our crash course in Bible history to set the scene. And we're going we're gonna to work through what we've just read from Esther to, to see how God is contrasting the reality of an invisible God with the very visible King. You see, if, if we've read chapter 1 of Esther, I think there's one thing that, that we're meant to notice. It's the grandeur of King Xerxes, king of this mighty Persian empire. But his grandeur isn't entirely a good thing. I think we're meant to see that it's, it's just kind of excessive. It's actually really dark and twisted and perverted and also pretty foolish. So let me show you how all of that comes out just briefly. If you've got the passage there in front of you, you see that we're told that the scene opens in the third year of Xerxes' reign and he throws a six-month expo of all his grandeur, the kind of brag fest for all of the important people of the empire. And we read in verse 5 that at the end of that six-month expo, we had a week-long banquet. But did you notice how much detail we were given about this? I don't know whether any of you had a scene coming to mind, but it reminds me of kind of the Hunger Games movies, the the capital. It's just gaudy, it's just excessive and and we're given so much detail about this, this, this crazy detail of the decorations and the outrageous pavement, even down to the the crazy idea that everyone gets their own personalised gold goblet to drink from. It's excessive and it's actually pretty ugly. After all, this banquet had an open bar for an entire week. I've been to university, I can imagine the carnage, the mess of that week. But then at the height of his festivities, in verse 10 and 11, Xerxes orders his wife Vashti 
to come out on display. It's horrible. In the excess of his grandeur, everything has become a tool for his ego. Even his wife, she's being kind of paraded as an, an object to highlight his power and prestige. I don't think Vashti's being asked to come for the, the pleasure of her company, but so that Xerxes can gloat. And he can point to everyone else and say, see this beautiful creature, she's mine, not yours. And then there are hints here in chapter 1 that we're actually meant to see how foolish this all is. There's a kind of a dark comedy to it. As Xerxes parades his power and might, we actually see his insecurity, really deep insecurity. Look how foolish he is at a few different points. First, Xerxes looks pretty foolish when his wife Vashti spoils his fun with just one word, no. Like from, from Xerxes' perspective, that the man who rules the empire can't even control his wife. Just to be clear, not my perspective on marriage, but he's looking pretty foolish in his own eyes at this point. And second, Xerxes looked pretty foolish when he has to call on the empire's greatest minds to deal with the simple matter of the queen's refusal. And third, he looks pretty foolish when he's quaking in his boots that his issues with his missus, that's going to trigger chaos across the whole empire. It's meant to be laughable. And as you read through Esther, you should look out for the moments when you think, actually, if I'm chuckling quietly on the inside, that's probably because the writer wants me to see that this is, this is kind of laughable. It's a picture of ego and power and insecurity. But actually, all of that ugly kind of excess, that's the context for the really tragic events that are about to unfold in this story. We got a snippet of it at the start of chapter 2 because it tells us about how Xerxes responds to his bruised ego and having booted out his beautiful wife, his, his sexual frustration. It's a pretty confronting story because he goes on to make a search for the most beautiful women in, in all of the empire and as if a beauty contest isn't objectifying women enough, this is actually a sex contest in which he will decide who pleases him in bed the most. It's horrible. And yet this is the picture of the visible king. The one who just looms large, who rules the world. It's a picture of excess and perversion and foolishness and just a life that totally disregards God. God doesn't even get a mention. But this is the context that God's people live in. Did you notice that, that up to this point, we've had this full-colour picture of the visible king in his debauchery and we... We haven't even met anyone who knows God yet, but we're about to. I'm going to read just the next paragraph from where we got up to. So if you've got your Bibles there, turn them up to verse 5 of chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who'd been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he'd brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So... Finally, here we meet Mordecai and Esther, for whom the book is named. They're right there in the middle of all of this grandeur of Xerxes' reign in the heart of the Persian Empire. 
But this is not a happy picture. In verse 5 and 6, we've learnt that they are far from home. Did you notice the first thing we learn about Mordecai is that he's a Jew? If we're reading the Bible, that might feel like an obvious thing to say, except that the term Jew, that's more than just telling us about his ethnic background. This is actually a title that, that ties Mordecai and Esther back to the promised land of Judah. That's where the, the word comes from. And in doing that, it ties us back to the covenant promises of God, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. And so our attention has shifted from the visible king, Xerxes, all his debauchery and grandeur, to see this family exiled here in this foreign land. Now, on top of that, we get this detail, which is easy to gloss over, that Mordecai comes from the tribe of Benjamin, and we know he comes from the clan of Kish. That's a proud clan because Kish was the name of the father of King Saul, Israel's first king. So Mordecai is a man of proud lineage, really bound up in the promises of God, and yet here he is, exiled far from home. And then in verse 7, we meet Esther. But did you notice that she wasn't introduced to us as, as Esther first? We learn that Mordecai's cousin Hadassah, has in many ways been left on her own. She's been orphaned by the death of her parents. She's now taken into the care of her older cousin. And, and Hadassah is a child torn between these two cultures. She's got two names. Hadassah is her Jewish name. She's been given a Persian name too, Esther. She's a girl with two names, but kind of a, a girl without a home. And having briefly met Mordecai and Esther, we learn that they're connected into this whole messy world of Xerxes because Esther, she is beautiful. And she is the one of the women taken for the king's pleasure. Esther is caught up in this systematic kidnap and rape of young women by the most powerful man on the planet for no other reason, no fault of her own, just that she's beautiful. If, if ever you've come across Esther kind of in a Sunday school, sort of a little bit of a Disney princess kind of version, you need to take that, put it in the shredder, put that aside. This is no Disney kind of rags to riches princess story. It's a gritty, dark, really challenging description of the world as it is. Where is God in it all? What's happened to his promises? Has he, has he so forgotten his people that... It's almost like the forces of evil, they just, they just run free across the earth. It's really helpful for us to see this really challenging kind of picture of God's people scattered amongst the nations with their identity under threat. They're immersed in a pagan culture, they, they seem so helpless and God is silent. He's not even named. And on this beautiful sunny you know, Sunday morning, here we are reading about this really challenging perspective on the world that I think this experience of Esther meshes so closely with their own time and place where God's promises can seem so distant and at times his people can seem so vulnerable. You might feel, if you're a Christian person, torn between cultures, at times struggling for identity, longing for Jesus to return and make all things new. Actually, you might be here today, and even to your ears, the suggestion that Christian people are waiting for Jesus to come back, believing that that is a promise of God, well, that might sound like a foolish fairy tale to you. Like, come on, it's been 2,000 years and you're still waiting? 
But I actually think it's really helpful to know that we didn't need to wait 2,000 years for people to think that it was foolish to expect Jesus to return, to, to hear the promises of the Bible and to live our life trusting in them. I've got a few New Testament passages that help us to reflect on that. You see, one of Jesus' earliest followers, the Apostle Peter, he wrote about this in what we know of as 2 Peter chapter 3. He said, there'll be scoffers who will say, where is this coming God has promised? But Peter goes on, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. And I've put it up on the screen for you. Oh, well, well, well. I haven't put it up on the screen. I'll just read it for you. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, God's people have always been called to walk by faith in an invisible God, to know the promises of God and to trust them even when they seem so far off. Romans chapter 8 is a really rich part of the Bible, again in the New Testament, that gives us a picture of what it means to live by faith in God's promises even when he can't be seen. We read there that, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not just all of creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen, that's no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have... We wait for it patiently. Friends, you see, God has spoken. He gives us his very great promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that, that chapter in Romans 8, it's all about trusting in those promises. It reminds us that God promises that in Jesus, our sins are forgiven and there is no longer any condemnation for those who trust in Jesus. That, that God promises that Come whatever might come, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus. God promises that Jesus is the Lord of all history, that, that history is moving forward under his reign, even if actually we can't quite see how it's planning out. Because you see, God knows that we live in the real world, a world like Esther's world, that's just full of suffering and, and frustration and a world of sin and its consequences. And God knows that we live in the real world as real people, people with frail bodies and flawed characters and sinful hearts. And so as we read the book of Esther, I think God gives us two really big picture ideas to consider. First, I think there's a challenge to repent. We need to change our thinking. We need to repent of an assumption that's actually quite arrogant, an assumption that it's harder for us to trust than those who've gone before us. I think we tend to think that it's harder to believe God's promises in the 21st century than it was before. And we're reminded in Esther that actually God's people have always been called to trust in the invisible God, even when trusting in Him means that we're going against the flow. 
You know, see, I think for many of us today, we've, we've kind of forgotten that God's people have always been in the minority, living in the middle of a culture so different to the way that God calls us to live. I think that we've gotten comfortable with the idea that, well, the West, it was formed on Christian values. We've come to expect that we'll be kind of esteemed and respected by our peers, not pitied by them or even ridiculed by them. But when we come to read the book of Esther, we, we're actually called to repent of that from this comfortable kind of perspective of Christianity that, that squirms when it sits at odds with the rest of the world. And we're challenged to live by faith in the promises of God made known through his word. So there's a really big idea. As we're reading through this book of Esther, we're challenged to repent. But the second big idea is that we're shown loads of reason for hope. You see, we can hope because we're reminded that, well, God knows that his people are scattered. They're they're vulnerable in the empire of the world. God God knows that we groan in the midst of a world where, where it seems like to run with the the picture, King Xerxes reigns. A world full of suffering and opposition and and ungodliness. You see, in the book of Esther, God is always in the background. He's never up front and visible and obvious. He's not even mentioned directly. But in in recognising that, we're actually seeing what it means for us to hope today knowing that even when God's promises, they might be hard to see, it it seems like they've been forgotten. He remains God, the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And he is actually the one who behind it all reigns over all people throughout all time. And he will bring his promises to their fulfilment. And both of these big ideas, they can be summed up in one very simple take-home point for us today. Very simple take-home point I'd love for you to take away. Live by faith in God's promises. But that comes with an implication, right? You need to know God's promises if you're going to live in light of them. Now, my three-year-old daughter, Annie, uh, she loves going along to Trinity Kids and she's got this song that's been running on repeat and and therefore it's stuck in my head. I'm not going to sing it for you, but say the words for you. Promises, promises. God keeps his promises he has made in his book. Promises, promises. To know God's promises, open the Bible and look. Now, I get it right. That feels like the classic pastor line. You can see where I'm going, Simon. Yes, see this from a mile off. Of course, the big take-home point is read your Bible more. But actually, yes, this time, that is my big take-home point. This is real. You see, I don't know how many people I've, I've spoken with, counseled in their, in their grief and their confusion, their, their frustration, because they don't know what God has promised and what he has not. Maybe they've been frustrated and disappointed because God hasn't lived up to their expectations, when in fact, their expectations, they were based on human desire rather than the things that God has promised in his word. At other times, I've spoken with people that have been just scared and disoriented because God seems to have abandoned them. He's just gone silent when in fact they're facing exactly the same kind of temptation or situation that God has promised would come. The situations in which he promises that he is with us always, using all things for the good of those who love him, working all things to his great ends, with his sovereign hand at work behind the scene, that's just as real even if we can't see it. 
And Esther is a wonderful book because it, it really does challenge us to know God's promises and to trust them. Look at these guys far from home, under the rule of a foreign king. And they're having to work out what it means to trust God and his promises. And Esther is really real about how the empire of the world, that can look pretty glamorous, full of bling, almost like life's a party, and God can seem very hidden in comparison. But in that, God actually points us to his reality behind it all, to his wonderful promises. We're going to unpack more of that in the next couple of weeks. But this morning, I just want to finish with another New Testament passage that reminds us of this. It's from the, the book of Hebrews that opens with these wonderful words of encouragement. It said, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So, later on in the book, the conclusion, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, because the one who promised is faithful. So will you pray with me? Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've included the book of Esther in the Bible that gives us just such a stripped-back, gritty, real look at the world and reminds us that even when you are hard to see, we can trust that you are at work. Even when your promises seem so far away, we can trust that you are faithful to them. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to long to know your promises so that we can live by faith in your promises. And as we've just been reminded, thank you that your promises all point us to Jesus who fulfills them for us. So please, help us to know him more and to live by faith in him, knowing that you are the one who is faithful to keep your promises to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.